Welcome to the New Jersey History Podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Vanner, and this is our episode on Asbury Park, July 1970. This is June 8, 2022. If you're listening now, that's the date, it will be released tomorrow morning, which would be Thursday morning. Um, a couple things to make you maybe chuckle a little bit. I wrote the name of the podcast behind me because I thought it would just be kind of funny because I cute. I am in the college where I teach. I had to find um, six dry erase markers that actually worked. I mean, I'm only in the school. Why would I expect one of them to work? Also, I think I mentioned that I bought a new iPad, $1,600, because, of course, I had to get the best one. Trying to film yourself on this, I had to put my Yeti water bottle in the back to prop it up. So the, the Yeti is what's holding it up. So you've got an $80 water bottle that doesn't fit in any holder. At least it's holding up the iPad. So that's that. So the Civil War raged from 1861 to 1865, but the aftershock continued. The aftershock was, as you may know, Reconstruction. Reconstruction was the time period after the Civil War, which lasted from 1865 to 1877. During the Reconstruction era, the South needed to be rebuilt, the nation needed to be reunited, and the destiny of the newly freed African Americans needed to be decided. Why am I talking about Reconstruction when the topic of this episode is Asbury Park in July of 1970? Does anybody think they know why? Think African Americans, newly freed people, free from slavery. Do you think you know why we're talking about Reconstruction or how the end of the Civil War ties into a discussion on Asbury Park? Asbury Park was founded by James Bradley in 1871 during the Reconstruction era. So that's six years after the Civil War ended. With the end of slavery, many African Americans remained on the plantations where they had been slaves, only to enjoy the difficult life of sharecropping. Sharecropping was when you would farm the land, raise the crops, harvest the crops, turn them over to the landowner, and you would keep a share of the crops that you could sell at the market for a price. Well. If you're a black family, no one's going to pay you a fair price for the crops. So you got what you could, and then you still have to pay rent on the land and so on. So you're always in a perpetual state of debt to the landowner, who is often your former master. So the reason I'm saying this is because this is what was going on in the South at the time Asbury Park was settled, established and settled. Unable to move up in Southern society due to strict black codes, those are those rules governing the, the uh, behaviors and the lives of African Americans. Unable to practice the freedoms that they had, I guess, deserved, you could say. Violence, threats of violence by groups like the Ku Klux Klan. Many black families moved north after the Civil War and the years during Reconstruction. So you've got the sharecropping, you've got unequal rights, um, no rights, you've got the Klan activity, not that the Klan wasn't active up here, but that, that's for a later, um, a later topic. Asbury Park, for example, was one of the perfect places for these people to move. With few job skills, many black migrants to the north took positions as domestic workers in the service industry. So as you probably know, if you're a New Jersey history person, you know that we have a lot of uh, hotels and motels along the shore now. But back in the day, so to speak, the day meaning the late 18, early 1900s, these were grand 
huge hotels. These these were not um, cute little motels where you might stay after your prom or you come down with the kids for a weekend. These were resorts. So when you look at those large buildings, those huge hotels, they needed service workers. They needed staff. So who manned the hotels? Many of them were African-Americans. Like nearby Lakewood with its resorts. Yes, Lakewood had resorts. Asbury's Resorts provided jobs for these workers. Jobs were low paying. They kept the people in near poverty and of course did not allow them the ability to live in the much desired beachfront part of the town or what was called the east side. An associated press release from July of 1970 sums it up well. Quote, the white people came seeking the sparkling sands and the cool Atlantic breezes and the white people brought the black people, end quote. So welcome to the podcast. We're going to be looking at, as we said a couple times, Asbury Park, July 1970, when urban unrest visited the New Jersey shore. Katrina Martin sums it up well. So how did Asbury Park become ground zero for riots from July 4th, 1970 to July 10th, 1970? This story began way before 1970. The first wave of the Great Migration brought African Americans from the South to Asbury Park for better opportunities. Historically, Asbury Park was a resort town that recruited African Americans to work in the resort industry. Again, not too different from nearby Lakewood. I know if you're if you're from New Jersey, but especially if you're from Ocean County where I live, when you think resort town, you're not thinking Lakewood. You're not. You're thinking, I don't want to know what you're thinking, some of you. I know what I think sometimes, and then I correct myself and say, no, don't think that. It's not right. Um, just driving through there at certain times, it's, it's, it's like I'd rather like, scratch my eyeballs out with, with, a, with a chisel. But I'm going to have a different episode on Lakewood itself and the growth and development of that town. So you have Asbury Park Resort Town. You have, we'll talk about Bradley Beach. We'll talk about other places as well. Lakewood. The reason I'm talking about comparing Lakewood is because Lakewood, for those of you who have lived in New Jersey or at least the shore for a while, you know that for a long time Lakewood was predominantly African Americans. And so was Asbury Park. So that's where the correlation comes in. American cities were on fire during the 1960s, literally. Racial tension, the escalating war in Vietnam, political assassinations, wealth disparity, and the lack of equal rights fueled protests which morphed into rioting, looting, killing, and arson. It's not something that we are um, free from now, if you think about that. The traditional conservative New Jersey shore seemed almost immune to these outbursts of, outbursts of incivility and barbarism, even though our region reflected the wealth disparity and lack of equal rights seen in the deepest parts of the South. In his book, Fourth of July, Asbury Park, A History of the Promised Land, Daniel Wolf writes, Asbury didn't explode in 1964. Jersey City and Patterson did. The next August, it was Watts. The routine arrest of a drunk driver led to six days of rebellion and 34 deaths, almost all of them African-Americans. In 1966, it was Chicago, Cleveland, and San Francisco. Still, Asbury remained quiet. Then in 1967, it was Newark. This wave did not hit Asbury, but the wake did. When the five-day Asbury Park riots of July 1970 were over, there were 180 injured, and there was $5.6 million in damaged and stolen property. I want to go back to that quote 
if you don't know what Watts is, Watts is a part of Los Angeles that was that rioting and, and, and looting in uh, 1965. Growing up in New Jersey, Watts made in 1964, I have to look that up. Growing up in New Jersey, specifically at the New Jersey Shore, I'm still surprised that I didn't know about as the Asbury Park riots until I was a senior in college. I, I went to, I'm from Brick, but I went to school in Belmar. I went to St. Rose in Belmar. It's two towns over, three towns over, little towns. How did I not know about the riots? I guess it's not like my family had recently moved to the area. It's not like we were just transplanted here and didn't know the, the history of the area. Both my family, mother's side and father's side, have lived in Brick full-time since the 1950s. Family have been coming down for summers, years and years and years before that. So this may be your first time hearing about the Asbury Park riots. So July 1970, the Asbury Park riots, if you didn't know about that, maybe you'll learn something new. If so, I hope I can enlighten you, and I hope you do some more research. For that purpose, I will include my sources at the end of the podcast and in the episode description. As I mentioned earlier, it's not as though Asbury Park didn't face the same problems that other towns and cities faced when it came to poverty, lack of equal rights and treatment, etc. So why did what happened in Asbury happen so late? And I'm using air quotes if you're not watching me on video. Why did this happen so late in Asbury when it did finally happen? Katrina Martin goes on to point out, at the time of the riots, Asbury Park was a town of 17,000, 30% of which were African-American. The town's population increased to 80,000 with summer vacationers. End quote. That means the white full-timers and summer vacationers' lives went on undisturbed and unchanged as the inner cities in America sizzled and simmered with racial tension. As many were, I would think, oblivious, maybe aloof, or indifferent to the problems facing the generations of neighbors and permanent residents on the west side of town, the black side of town, they may have also been indifferent to what was going on in the cities around the country. So let me just break that down. I, I would imagine um, this is not a, a lecture or a lesson on, on, on race relations or anything like that. It's a lesson, a, a discussion on, um, I can say like a report on one incident. But I would imagine the 1960s, take my family for example, I, I'm, I'm blessed, I'm thankful to have known all four of my grandparents and to my great-grandparents. Great people. Um, I certainly wouldn't say that they were racist, but I don't think in the 1960s, I don't think they were really looking at the deeper causes of what was going on in the country at that time, even though they were certainly aware. They were politically minded. They were intelligent people. They, they paid attention to the news, like most people watch news every night back then. People still do that. But I think if you look at Asbury Park in the late 60s into 1970, the white um, citizens, they were probably, they were certainly aware of what was going on in the country with regard to race relations, and they probably felt a certain type of way about it. Um, felt bad for the people. Oh, I understand why they're rioting. You shouldn't be rioting. But I don't know if the people who lived in Asbury at the time or the people certainly who were visiting really knew the plight of the people who were permanent residents there. Okay, um, let me quickly explain that the west side was black with black residences and slums owned by local city leaders in many cases and there were black businesses on the west side that doesn't mean that there weren't white owned businesses there because there also works predominantly black on the west side the east side had larger businesses like uh, Steinbach's was there 
The original Asbury Park Press building was there and other businesses as well. As one continued east, it was the shore and resort area that came next. Now you're looking at the coast. Many of the town's upper middle class and, more, and uh, maybe solidly middle class toward, toward upper middle class people lived near the lake. During the turbulent 1960s, Asbury Park saw the same cultural and growing generational divide when it came to politics, values, and work ethic. Asbury also witnessed its share of youth acting out against the actions of what they saw as an oppressive and discriminatory society, both real and perceived. So the inevitable destruction that came in July of 1970 was put off for a while, not because of the mayor and council or because of elected leaders or because of the citizens, but because of the hope and belief in upholding the law held by police chief Thomas Smith. I want to talk about him for a minute. Thomas Smith was a black policeman who had risen to the rank of captain, but was then held back from being made chief because Asbury, according to David Wolf, quote, wasn't ready for him. He was told that, we're not ready for you, because he's black. Smith remains, uh, reminds me of someone like Dr. King, who seemed to work within the system to bring about change, he, he wasn't advocating for violence. He wasn't advocating for um, rioting. He, he wanted people, if you want to make change, work within the system. Um, Chief Smith also believed that if people, youth specifically, began acting out, they could be reined back in by the police and the rule of law. So he believed that if youth started acting out and people started, started acting out like they did in other cities, if the police came and said, all right, you guys, you have to obey the law, you can't burn that down, that they would, they would obey that because it was the law. Um, that worked, and it worked even after Dr. King's assassination in 1968. It worked as more and more local men were being drafted into the Vietnam War, and it worked as more and more young people found it increasingly difficult to find work. I think it's important to discuss young people and lack of job opportunities because it came up quite a bit as I did my research because it seems that one of the reasons why Asbury was... Um, a lot of the frustrations among the young people were that they did not have work. Again, I'll refer to Katrina Martin. Uh, she, she did some really great work, and, and her, um, her writing is going to be in my bibliography or my notes that I always include. She says, quote, The Great Depression, followed by World War II, caused the resort industry in Asbury Park to change dramatically to keep up with the times. The fancy resort stays gave way to weekend vacationers. The community maintained a steady resort community, but jobs at the resorts were frequently outsourced to white youth in the surrounding area instead of local African-American youth, which caused frustration in the community. What I see here is that having a, I'm kind of looking back, I'm kind of imagining this, having a black staff in service at a hotel, like a grand hotel, like porters and doormen, and cleaning staff and maintenance, that was fine. Kind of like working, not in the shadows, but on the perimeter. Like you see them and that's their job, that's their purpose. But having a black person, especially a young black person, wait on tables directly, guarding the beaches, running the carousel, cooking, serving the food, scooping the ice cream, no. That's a little too hands-on. That's how I'm looking at this. I'm looking at it like once those grand resorts were gone, and they didn't need that tremendous staff that could work like behind the scenes, the, the, there weren't enough jobs for the, for the African-American people because they used to have those jobs. And we don't want the African-American people, especially the youth, black people, having jobs where they're like right there. That's kind of how I'm imagining that. Amidst this lack of jobs and inequality was a change of times and morals 
which was evident all over the nation. You know the 60s were a time of, a time of changing everything, right? changing morals, changing dress, and things like that. The citizens of Asbury Park, black and white, were well aware of the changing times. At this point by 1970, Asbury simply becomes a microcosm of what the rest of some areas in America had already been, and I'm calling that a powder keg. An unnamed blogger sums up uh, Asbury Park in July of 1970 thusly. With the temperature in the high 90s, no jobs, no hope for jobs, no recreation programs, and no real indication that city fathers were listening to their concerns, the West Side youth were frustrated, angry, and most likely feeling a sense of hopelessness." End quote. Arthur Polite was a black, a local black businessman at that time, late 1960s, 1970s, Asbury Park. He was a traditional black Republican. He saw the, si the sins on Springwood Avenue, which is part of the West Side, the black side, as immoral and sinful. Like, like he saw, he looked at um, the ways African-American youths were behaving, the, um, what they were engaging in, the activities, and so on. He saw drug dealers hanging out on street corners and, quote, his, his word, faggots, showing off their wigs and rings, their numbers out of proportion to the size of Asbury Park. And he felt the police and establishment needed to get them under control. I, I got that information from a couple of sources, um, from the David Wolf book on Asbury Park, and I didn't, I didn't include, include an entire quote because it was very, very long, so I picked some things out of there. So you did see in Asbury Park, whereas the young people are getting frustrated, there were middle-class, solidly re Republican, uh, African-American people, business people, who did not change with the times. They were okay, so it's almost like, kind of like that, maybe pull yourself up, up by the bootstraps mentality, like, I did it, you can do it type thing. So don't think that every person on the West Side, when the riots happened, was they were all throwing brick, bricks through windows and burning things. It really wasn't. There were people in that, in that part of the community, African-American people, who, I don't want to say didn't understand, but didn't get why the youth especially were, were acting out the way they were. Conversely, David Parriott was a police detective in Asbury Park. He was in charge of youth programs, and he said the people of the West Side, quote, want something to do other than to stand around on the street corners. They are seeking the same things that their fathers sought, security, love, affection, social status, and new experiences, end quote. But why, my question, why didn't their fathers and grandfathers engage in the behaviors that came next? So if, if you have an African-American man who, steals with, who deals with the youth, helps them, saying that they want, um, they're acting out because they want security, love, social status, new experiences, and so on, their fathers and grandfathers who, of, who often lived, who would have lived in that same community wanted the same thing. Why didn't they burn things? Why didn't they riot? Maybe it was because of what people saw on television. This is what's going on here, and if I do it, I'll, I'll get what I want. I'll, I'll get what I need. Whatever. I don't have the answer to that. Here's an excerpt from David Wolf's Fourth of July Asbury Park. There were two uh, dances on the west side of town on the 4th of July, 1970. 
One was at a community center, and one was at uh, Roman Catholic Church Hall. Black youths came from Freehold, Red Bank, Tom's River, and other surrounding areas to attend these dances. It was at these dances, as well as at the West Side nightclubs, where one could hear Aretha Franklin and Marvin Gaye, as well as other music not commonly played by bands on the beach or on the east side. On this night, the out-of-towners there for the dances would have even more entertainment. So you had the youth who were getting angry in society, at society, in the late 60s, now into 1970. You've got um, Asbury Park youth who are, they've totally had it with the, the, the way their lives are, 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 um, are being lived by themselves beca because they, they have nothing. And that's how I'm looking at it, disillusioned, I guess is the right word. Now, you add on to that, in the town that night were these two big dances with out-of-town kids who probably would have been, been African-American, I would imagine. So now, when the riots start, you've got more people involved. Apparently, it all started that night, July 4th, 1970, with a group of kids throwing bottles at a car. Then the crowd grew, and they emptied a trash can into a convertible parked at a light. The group got bigger and louder, and some of the older black men from the community chastised the kids, said, go home, let's knock it off, we don't want this kind of nonsense, whatever. Someone at that point had called the cops. It should be understood that the white police officers did not routinely respond to calls on the west side. That was for the black officers to do. The crowd grew, and the kids from the dance joined the street kids. Wolf explains it even more vividly, quote, from down the avenue, they reminded an eyewitness of ants, how they milled and joined and turned into a single body. The body headed for the crowd, already too big for the patrolman to handle. End quote. Donald Hamery, a black man who was a local, uh, local resident and community activist, recalled one of the, he says, uh, quote, now when the hoodlums took over, they shouted, get rid of them black pigs, get them out of here. One of the cops got hit in the head and one on the shoulder. I saw tears in the cops' eyes, end quote. So here's a, uh, Donald Hamry was a black man, community member who saw this happening, and he, he sees the kids um, quickly turning on the black, the black police officers because, of course, I guess they see them as part of the establishment. That hasn't changed. You know, I didn't write this down to say. We like to think that because we live in 2022 that we are so enlightened. Oh, we've come such a long way. No, we haven't. Really haven't. You see this same thing happening now. It's, it's just, we could have a whole discussion about that. The crowd destroyed and robbed the liquor store, then a pharmacy. As this was unfolding on the west side, the east side began setting up boundaries and barriers to contain the melee that was happening on the west, lest it spill over to where it would not be welcome. The following morning, this would be July 5th, not knowing how the riots would escalate, Mayor Joe Matisse stated, we're very fortunate it occurred where it did. It didn't affect our business area. Okay, Joe. So let it happen over there with those people. But don't come over to this side. I'm imagining somebody saying that now in 2022. Now I correct myself. There are people who would say that today in 2022. The city was under curfew from 8.30 p.m. to 6 a.m. The crowd had been driven back across the railroad tracks to the west side in order to contain them. According to the New York Times, quote, 
After the crowd was driven back across the railroad tracks this afternoon, there was a series of ugly confrontations between the angry crowd and police. There were showers of rocks and bottles and a few firebombs from the crowds. The police responded with tear gas, clouds of pepper gas from portable machines, and shots in the air. Several times, the state police fell upon isolated youths along the railroad tracks and clubbed them, end quote. At this point, I'm going to summarize some events because for time's sake. By Monday, July 6th, Mayor Matisse ordered a curfew, I talked about. Surrounding local police as well as New Jersey State Police were summoned and brought in via trucks by the National Guard. On Tuesday, July 7th, 1970, African-American representatives from the community presented a list of 20 demands to city officials, including better housing conditions, and as many were infested with rats. It's not surprising. On Wednesday, July 8th, 1970, city officials, representatives of New Jersey Governor Cahill, and the African-American community met in a closed conference. Governor Cahill completed a brief tour via vehicle then requested President Nixon to declare the city a major disaster area after the disorders, as the riots were called. Friday, July 10th, 1970, marked the last day of rioting. The state troopers were removed from the west side but remained on patrol of other sections of the city. Matisse and city council, the city council, had a productive meeting with the west side residents to discuss demands. From that point, many local residents and historians agree that Asbury Park spiraled into a terrible decline. The city has seen gentrification, redevelopment, and almost a repurposing. I don't know if anybody has been there. Um, like I said before, I went to school in Belmar, a couple of towns over, and we weren't allowed to go to Asbury Park. Like I remember when I got my driver's license, I drove from Brick um, to St. Rose in Belmar every day, not not long, 15 minutes. Um, and I had my own car, but I knew that I was not allowed to go to Asbury Park. Of course, you're not allowed to go somewhere. What do you do? You go there, right? So we, we, I used to drive through there, and it was like a war zone. This is like 1992. There was a, there was a, a couple of stores. Excuse me a minute. Um, I need coffee. I taught my regular classes um, at the middle school, and now I have a 6 to 9.45 class here at the college. Yeah, 9.45 p.m. Who does that? This guy. Um, so there was a, there were still some stores in Asbury in the 1990s. One was called Mr. Fashion. And the man who owned it, I forgot his name. I should, I should, I look, could you look it up? I didn't think of it when I was typing this, these notes out and writing up my little presentation. He had been, he had been mayor of Asbury Park, black man. And uh, he ran a, a clothing store, a men's clothing store. And it had a lot of like higher-end clothing. Um, stuff that you really wouldn't find in, in your department stores. Great following, people always in and out. But most of the businesses were closed up. And this is in the 1990s. If you've been to Ashbury Park, seen pictures of it since then, big changes, major changes. It's like the place to go now. It's almost, it's almost, this is my, this is my opinion here. Asbury Park has become the place to go to the point where nobody wants to go there because it's just too crowded. It's, it's like, I, I don't want to go there. I, I, it's great, great restaurants, but it's just too much. No, that's just me. So the clear delineation, even now, in 2022, when I'm recording this, the clear delineation between the east and east side and west side still exists. If you're in the area, take a day trip, go to Asbury, walk the boardwalk, and just drive. Drive west, and you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. 
demographics are still very much the same as they were in 1970. In conclusion, uh, Daniel Weeks states, next to Los Angeles, Detroit, or Newark, where major race riots took place in the 1960s, Asbury Park is a small town. Then, too, in Asbury, no one died, and historians who are never immune to the culture in which they live tend to measure the importance of civil unrest in terms of death toll. But that is not to say what happened in Asbury is unimportant, particularly to the history of the city itself and to the history of New Jersey. Beyond these conditions, the events in Asbury Park should be remembered as part of what has been called the Black Revolt of the 1960s. So that ends my research. Um, tried to get some good quotes in there. I want to just give my sources were uh, Katrina Martin um, from, uh, from June of 2016, the Asbury Park July 1970 riots, The Devil's Tale. Uh, that's, I, I think that's a Seton Hall publication. Daniel Weeks uh, from July of 2016. So these are relatively new sources. From Riot to Revolt, Asbury Park in July 1970 from New Jersey Studies. And finally, my quote from the unknown blog, unknown author of the blog, was from the Asbury, Asbury Park Mark, the Asbury Park riots of July 1970. That's from 2010. So I hope you enjoyed that. I know it's a, it's a longer episode, which I'm fine with that. Uh, let me know what you think about these video episodes. I know if you're on Apple Podcasts, I don't think you can see me. Spotify people can too, but I don't think you have to do video. You can still listen. Um, I'm not sure how I feel about the video episodes. I don't mind filming myself, but like I said, I was kind of being funny in the beginning, but it's also serious. Somebody has to show me how to maneuver this iPad because I can't do it. Either that or I have to have somebody film me, which they can't do because then they'd be shaking all the time. I don't know. It just seems it, I'm looking up at the camera now. I hope I'm looking at the camera, and I'm just staring at that Yeti bottle. Here's this big, huge iPad with all these bells and whistles being held up by a water bottle. Boggles my mind, and again, I'm sure it's something I'm doing. So I'm kind of more angry at myself for not knowing technology that I feel like I should know. So, if you're unsure, you've got behind me the the um, New Jersey History Podcast. As always, reach out to me, njhistorypodcast at gmail.com. I've been checking that regularly. I, I I'm not trying to link it with other accounts, so I'm doing it separately so that so that emails emails don't get lost. As you can see, because men, you can see me now. Um, I do type these, I do kind of like type out notes. Sometimes I handwrite them, but for this one, I had to do a lot of research on it because I wanted to have, um, I wanted to have it to be one of the longer episodes. So as you can see, I, I do uh, I do read from some things. So if you have a topic that you suggest, I know some people sent some really good ones in, send me links to information and I'll include your information as well. I'm glad to find my own you send me a topic, but I will certainly include it in my bibliography at the end or whatever you want to call it. I do want to, I said I would mention this, one of the listeners messaged me on Instagram about something she found in Alaire State Park in the woods. I think it was in the park, but it was by Alaire. She's a dinosaur lady. She builds the dinosaurs. And she found what looked like a hollowed out coconut with a, an opening at the top seems like a, like a drinking vessel of some sort so I I think I can get a picture of it from Instagram she sent me and put it on like somewhere on the the um, 
podcast or I can just hold it up next time and people can see if they're doing the video for it. We're trying to figure out what it is. I, I don't think that the, um, the material is native to New Jersey, so I suggest that maybe she should take it to the Monmouth or Ocean County Historical Society, see what they can do. I'm thinking, I mean, Native American, but I don't know if they would have had access to coconuts. Um, but again, maybe maybe it's not. It just looks like that. So, shout out to our dinosaur lady. I don't want to give your name because I, I don't I don't think that's I wouldn't want to do that unless I had specific permission. So, dinosaur lady, you do a great job with the dinosaurs at a lair, and thank you for sharing that. A couple of other people messaged me about things that they'd like to talk about. Um, New Jersey being like the first Hollywood. And if you were watching this, you saw me do air quotes with my fingers. Yeah, um, there were a lot of films, early films um, in New Jersey, made in New Jersey. And the theory is, or I shouldn't say the theory, the thought is that because Thomas Edison felt that he had the, the moving picture industry like cornered, that people left and went to as far away from him as possible. That's a theory that I heard, which California would be really far away. And of course, in California, you could film all year, all year round with the, with the weather. So we'll talk about that. And someone had asked to talk about Hessians, the um, soldiers hired by the British to help fight in the American Revolution and the War for Independence. I, one of my pet peeves, and I don't know why this bothers me, when people say Hessians, there's no H, except in the beginning of the word. It's Hessians. They're from Hess, not Hesh. So the Hessians, who were people who were, um, again, fought for the British in the American Revolution, a lot of them, when the war was over, stayed here in America. They didn't go back to, to their part of Germany. Germany wasn't even Germany then. So any questions, feel free to email me. Any um, suggestions, email me as well. So I'm going to, again, because th there's no timer on this, I'm going to get up now and walk over and stop the, the video. If you know what I'm doing wrong with this, please feel free to let me know.